This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released long-awaited cybersecurity performance goals this week. The measures promise to help critical infrastructure companies and other firms prioritize the adoption of key security measures. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, give us the backstory on these so-called performance goals. They look a little bit like NIST guidance on standardized controls that companies should have in place. Is that what's driving them or where do these come from? That's exactly right, Tom. Actually, these cybersecurity performance goals are based on the NIST cybersecurity framework and they give companies, uh, specifically critical infrastructure companies, but any company really can take these and and prioritize how they're going to approach things like account security, device security, and do that in accordance with the NIST framework so they'll notionally be more secure. And this all came from actually a presidential uh, national security memorandum issued last year that directed DHS and CISA to come out with these performance goals for critical infrastructure specifically. And CISA Director Jen Easterly, in a call with reporters just this week, described the goals as a quick start guide to help organizations start adopting the NIST framework. The goals were developed to really represent a minimum baseline of cybersecurity measures that, if implemented, will reduce not only risk to critical infrastructure, but also to national security, economic security, and public health and safety. That's CISA Director Jen Easterly talking about these new cyber performance goals that CISA just released this week. All right. And uh, they make it clear in black type that these are not mandates. They're not mandatory. And they also say they're not comprehensive. What were they talking about? Yeah, so that's sort of what Jen Easterly was talking about earlier. This is a minimum baseline just to get organizations started on a minimal level of cybersecurity. This is not going to necessarily defend your company from a nation state advanced persistent threat type cyber attack. But importantly, it will help defend a lot of the sort of phishing and other types of cyber attacks that are so common that are happening in the millions seemingly every day. And the the goals, while voluntary, are expected to potentially form the basis of regulation that other agencies might push out to the sectors that they regulate. And that's been happening just this week. For instance, the FCC issued new cybersecurity requirements for emergency alert system providers like broadcasters and and cable providers and and radio stations. But Easterly says it will be up to the agencies who regulate critical infrastructure sectors to determine whether they make these goals a requirement. Whether these are used by regulatory agencies or by others as part of uh, the standards that they go to to look at for those purposes, I would leave it to them. We see these as voluntary tools that any business, large and small, critical infrastructure can take to ensure the resilience of their systems and to drive down risk. Those are all great goals, but again, they're voluntary. They're not comprehensive. They already exist in the NIST framework, which a lot of companies actually welcome and use. So what is next for these goals? What's next for CISA to maybe encourage companies to do it, even though they can't compel them to. Well, certainly CIS is going to keep evangelizing the need to adopt these goals. And I think that the the document they put out probably distills the NIST cybersecurity framework into a little bit easier to understand terms than perhaps the NIST framework itself. But CIS is going to keep pushing that. They're also going to work with sector risk management agencies. These are the agencies that actually regulate sectors like the EPA regulates 
water. And they're going to develop sector-specific goals to take into account the specific types of technologies and things that a, a given critical infrastructure sector might use. Eric Goldstein is CISA's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity. He says CISA is initiating talks with the sector risk management agencies this week. This is really going to be a sector and industry-led process, where certainly where CISA serves as the sector risk management agency, we are going to have deep and collaborative conversations with those sectors uh, uh, who we serve. Uh, and for sectors where we are not the sector risk management agency, we are working closely with each SRMA to understand uh, how the cross-sector goals apply to their sectors and the need to develop sectoral goals uh, in the near or, or medium term. And he used that acronym there. What did he mean by that term? SRMA, Sector Risk Management Agency. Again, one Got of it. those agencies that regulates a critical infrastructure sector. Now, these goals mm. are probably good for any organization. How do they relate to cybersecurity practices of federal agencies? Right. Well, the, you know, the cybersecurity measures are relevant for federal agencies. Goldstein said they developed them uh, with federal agencies and the, the types of requirements that they have to follow in mind. And they actually tried to line them up with last May's cybersecurity executive order, which was aimed directly at federal networks, as well as the federal zero trust strategy that was published in January. And CISA is going to continue leaning on these goals as they push out more guidance to federal agencies. Here's Goldstein again. We are absolutely uh, intending to integrate uh, these goals uh, in the guidance, the assessment, the measurement of federal agencies uh, that we undertake uh, with our partners uh, at the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of the National Cyber Director. And it's fair to say that in this report that they just put out, this set of guidelines or performance goals, there is a CPG performance goal checklist, cybersecurity performance goal checklist, 15 pages long. It's a pretty good checklist. It's actually easy to understand. It tells you the relative cost, almost like a restaurant menu, how many dollar signs for each measure you might have to take. There is an indicator, red or green, whether the impact is high or low and whether the complexity is high or low. So they have done a lot of pre-digestion for companies, I guess, that might want to adopt this, Justin. Yeah, that's right. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas also uh, briefed reporters this week on on the new uh, goals. And he said he re- literally said this is a menu of options for anyone, you know, who's running a small company of 50 people or a, a big corporation to advance their cybersecurity and actually understand the trade-offs that go into paying for that and prioritizing that and doing that across both information technology and operational technology, which we haven't mentioned here, but operational technology, things that control how we uh, get water and, and get energy these days. These goals are intended to apply to those as well. And that's really important when we're talking about critical infrastructure at any level. Yeah, most of these types of utilities and critical infrastructures are controlled now on networks, and those networks maybe didn't used to, but now they have some connection to business systems and therefore to the internet, and that's kind of what the big potential danger here is. Interestingly, it says the impact is high and the complexity low and the cost low of detection of unsuccessful automated login attempts, but when it gets into high complexity, also high impact and high cost is actually prohibiting connection of unauthorized devices. 
So you can detect it, but to actually prevent it, that's going to cost you money and time, sounds like. Yeah, and it also might uh, require you to put in place a, a, a much uh, more robust cybersecurity program because so many devices and connections have been set up with allowing people to connect with that sort of interconnection mindset in mind so you can get employees to work on systems more easily and things like that. So going the other way, that's this balance that I think uh, cybersecurity defenders are always trying to strike. And just getting back to something you mentioned earlier, that this could be followed up with rulemaking, but that rulemaking would be coming from the specific agencies that regulate a particular part of the economy or the or the critical infrastructure, not necessarily from CISA, correct? That's right. You know, there, there's a lot at play here when it comes to cyber regulations. Congress is considering some action, but it doesn't look like they will move forward with any new cybersecurity regulations this year. So sector risk management agencies like the EPA is considering actions to include cybersecurity as part of their sanitation uh, and safety reviews that they do of water utilities. For instance, I mentioned the FCC rulemaking uh, process that was just announced this week for emergency alert systems. So you're seeing these specific sector risk management agencies again go out and potentially use these goals, but also kind of determine how they want to regulate cybersecurity in their own way for their own sectors as well. Any reaction from industry at this point? It's it's largely been uh, supportive because, as we've mentioned, uh, it's these are voluntary goals. These are kind of intended to evangelize best practices within the cybersecurity community. There isn't a whole lot of teeth uh, and potential uh, sticks behind them. There aren't any carrots either. This is really up to organizations to be proactive about uh, adopting these goals. So, again, it's just advancing the NIST cybersecurity framework, but it's an important line in the sand as we continue to track these regulatory efforts. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com, where you can also link to that new guidance. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. 
Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. 
Well, I wish I wish Jane, it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So 
So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. At the Home Depot, when you buy select Ryobi tools, you'll get an extra Ryobi OnePlus battery for free. Now you can give a gift that not only keeps on giving, but also keeps your favorite tools going. So whether your holidays sound like this, or this, we have the gifts to make your holiday magic. Plus, get free delivery on over 2 million eligible items from the Home Depot. How doers get more done.